Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a glorious summer morning here in the capital, which I'm sure everybody has a very heavy hangover, is Martin Gonzalez-Science. Martin is a construction consultant, contractor, development broker and property specialist, and he's currently a director at Hearst Development Solutions, a family-run business in Reading with over 40 years of experience in the building industry. Uh, Martin, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Martin. Um, Certainly is a lovely day for it as well. Um, I think we should probably begin by addressing sort of the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that as we record this uh, podcast in early July 2021, we are still living under some form of freedom curtailment due to the COVID-19 situation, and that's been the case now for the best part of the last 15 or 16 months. Now, here in England, we can, of course, see a finish line in sight with that July 19th Freedom Day looking like it's going ahead. But looking back over the course of the entire pandemic, how has it affected you and affected your business, would you say, on the whole? Um, well, I think I think we've been reasonably lucky. Um, it's obviously had a massive impact um, in different ways at different times during the pandemic. So I guess early on, um, the, the critical one was, you know, uh, staff and, um, and actually um, whether we could come into work or... Um, or um, whether we could actually uh, get get on site and actually complete projects. Um, then, you know, we sort of navigated our way around that. We were quite lucky that the construction industry was one of those industries that was allowed to continue to to work through most of the pandemic. Um, we then obviously had the, 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 the dilemma of trying to source materials, which were obviously um, quite difficult. But we had... We were quite fortunate that we had kind of planned that it, it could happen um, in in the early stages. So we we, we did sort of uh, do a lot of buying, um, and we were fortunate enough that we were in a position to do that buying of materials and storing um, and materials to keep work flowing. Mm. Um, and then as we've gone through the um, the pandemic, I mean, we we've um, been involved in with quite big projects. I mean, most of our projects do run anywhere between six months to eighteen months. So we already had a, a good run of work in, in place, but obviously in, in, in smaller companies in the construction industry and um, smaller firms, they're on a lot smaller scale projects, which is obviously very difficult because people just weren't having work, and especially if you're in the residential sector um, and you need to get on people's homes. So um, mm. in that sense, yeah, we, we do a lot of new builds, so we weren't around people too much. We were an independent site. Um, not occupied houses, so we were we were quite fortunate there. And then, and then, I thought I suppose the, the new the new problems that we're facing at the end of the pandemic now, as, as we almost as you say through the light of the end of the tunnel, is the what the knock on effect of the shortages in 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 uh, manufacture has now caused, mm. and, and and getting hold of materials again. Um, and before it was where. Um, merchants weren't open and running and delivering. And now it's because the manufacturing process hasn't taken place over the last year or so. 
and we now have this huge demand. I think it's the same in the in the motor industry now. Um, and um, you know, people want all these things, and not everyone can have them. And, and the issue being for this for the for firms like myself, and even smaller firms, is the bigger nationwide house builders will always take prevalence because they're buying on such a big scale. The volume that they obviously get through is always going to take take precedence. Essentially, yeah, they're dominating the market, aren't they? And it is a big time for the yeah. construction industry coming up because the government's Build Back Better agenda really places construction at the forefront of that. And it's going to be a big opportunity for the sector. Um, but obviously with those supply chain issues, I mean, that's a big issue to have to wrangle with at such a key time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're talking to, you know, peers and stuff in the, in the industry and, and everyone's sort of saying the same thing, you know. It, 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 it's the busiest they, they've been, and I think it's that pent-up demand that's come back in. And like you say, um, lots of people that have lived through lockdown, perhaps, and um, you know, have, have been in in, in living environments and habitats that they're not they're not sort of been happy or comfortable in. And perhaps you know, especially if you have been in the capital, you've been in the city, you've been in an apartment or a flat. Perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, if we go through another anything like this ever again, I, I want to have a garden, open space. I want to, you know. There was a lot of people, I think, you know, we were all in it together, but I feel like, you know, people's experiences of the pandemic were a lot different depending on what your environment was. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And that does have an impact on sort of mental health and well-being, doesn't it? And thinking about sort of that for a moment, um, I understand as well that the construction sector has carried on largely as normal throughout the pandemic. But of course, having to adhere to certain restrictions, such as the social distancing side, when it comes to sort of your workforce, um, have they applied themselves well to adjust to that? Or were there maybe one or two anxieties? Yeah, yeah no, really, really well. I mean, we, as I say, we... Early on, we, we, we kind of, when we established what was going to be happening, we put a couple of things in place, just small internal procedures and protocols that we, we got people to follow, you know, as far as not traveling together anymore and, you know, and, and working in smaller groups in open airspace situations. Nothing nothing inside was done for a long time. Um, and we were, we, again, we were quite fortunate that we could, we could focus on open air um, environments and, and sites that had that facility there. And we weren't eating together, um, and, and and you know, and gradually, yeah, we we keep the we keep the social distancing obviously in place still. But there are situations where you know that, that it's not feasible, and 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 sometimes, and obviously, then you have to apply different different things like the PPE and, and protecting yourselves with the masks and goggles and stuff to to ensure you can work together safely. But no, as far as my own personal force, I think early on everyone was a little bit wary about whether we should be at work or not mm-hmm. and um, whether we could continue and um, I think after a, a couple of weeks and it sort of all settled and they understood what we were trying to do um, and obviously we did offer the opportunity that if anyone felt like they, they really couldn't be there for whatever reason then, then we gave them an opportunity to, to, to try and work from home and do other stuff for the company um, but no one wanted to take us up on that so we, we were we were quite uh, quite lucky in that respect. So they've really sort of risen to the challenge, haven't they? And um, I can imagine as well, sort of looking back over the whole sort of pandemic period, even though it's been quite a challenging time for the business, you've probably come through this almost feeling you've become more resilient, more stronger, and even maybe learnt a lot from it as well. Yeah, there, there was definitely um, definitely lessons to be learned. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially from a planning point of view, I think, um, you know, you you're, you always think that you're, have an element of foresight in what you're doing and you think that you've like you say you've got certain things in place to 
to ensure things run smoothly. But when you're actually faced with, well, we're not going to be able to get hold of that, that job's going to stop. People are going to be without work to, to get on with. Um, then all of a sudden your whole thought process has to be a lot more regimented. You have to put a, a structure in place that right now I need to be really much further than ahead than I would have been normally. Um, and I think that's something that I've definitely carried forward. And obviously my my own, I mean, um, I, I've become a little bit more productive, I think, in the period because I spent, did, I mean, I'm office-based, but I, I would say that, um, like today, you can probably hear in a car, I do a lot of site visits, mm. um, and I'm out and, out and about in sites. I couldn't do that, obviously, during the pandemic, so I was quite limited to site. Um, I didn't go out and visit site much at all. Um, so I was, you know, very much just in front of my computer and doing all the, uh, doing all the, the things that we have to do to run the business and and then you you actually get that time of putting again more things into place that actually you think well wow, that's saving a lot of time perhaps i don't need to go out to site as much as i was doing before you know we all started working to make, you know becoming a little bit more using a little bit more initiative mm. and actually saying oh you know well, perhaps we can do this over zoom perhaps we can you know make um um you know take a lot of progress and a lot of construction industry software came about during this time as well where you had a platform where you can log all of this information and create a flow of work which they do in obviously lots of other industries but obviously the construction industry in the big in the bigger companies obviously they are using it in the smaller firms like my they're quite resistant to a traditional way of working mm. but no we, we've we've found that yeah we've taken certain things how we how we do stuff and had central locations to, 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 to stop data and, and to log things and and and, put, and clients have bought into it too and had live live documents that people were uh, architects and engineers and everything have access to. So we, yeah, we 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 we've adapted, and I think that, that I think that that can only be positive. Yeah, I think what the pandemic certainly has done, hasn't it, is it's hastened that digital revolution. One of the few positives to come out of this is that technology now is going to play more of a part in the way we do business. And it's made us more time efficient and in some ways even more sustainable as well. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, you know, a uh, little, little thing comes up on your phone and says where you need to be, what you need to do, how long you were supposed to be there now. You know, all of my... Uh, I always used to keep a diary. Now I have a Google Calendar, <laughs> so um, that's that's one thing for me. I was quite traditional in that respect, and uh, it just it just it just it does make things so much easier. It gives you those little prompts. You know, you're always asking. You can ask Alexa or Siri or whoever you're using. You know, what have I got? So it makes it it's so easy to use now that everything is it's just trying to give you that feel of having a personal system without having having one. It does, exactly. And um, just before um, I let you go, Martin, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time on the show this morning, I do want to talk about the future because we do have that July 19th Freedom Day in sight in England, of course. But as we sort of pass beyond that period, hopefully, and we move into that sort of post-pandemic world in the immediate term, what are some of the priorities going to be for your businesses? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time next year as we sort of embrace this key time for the construction sector? Um, yeah, I mean, for, for my business, for, for, for my main thing, my, my contracting company, I mean, we, we are, you know, trying to, trying to really hone in on what we, we what we want to do. And, and I think we're, we're not trying to get too caught up in this huge, huge, um, little spike in demand that we're seeing and, and, and try and commit ourselves to too many things. So we're trying to be, you know, take it as an opportunity to really hone in on, on the, on the jobs, which is specifically, um, new build projects for either investors or self-build projects um, 
homeowners. So we're we're trying to kind of focus on that from my other from my other consultancy company. I mean, I think that's just going to grow and grow because I think this the, the whole project management of an intermediary coming into the industry and and providing that security to contractors and 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 homeowners. Um, I just think that demand for that's going to be huge going forward because um, it's still the, the single biggest investment that people are making um, on their homes and, and you know and 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 for being able to provide people with a little bit more information, transparency, uh, especially when you're in a market now where there is a huge demand from all all corners, there is even more chance that you are at risk of you know being um, uh, you know paying paying over the odds. For work or even being let down for work um so it's, it's a really dangerous and can be a frustrating time for for pit for homeowners and for people trying to trying to get work done so i think that that business will yeah be be, be very much um well i've already seen it it will be very much in demand because i think i think that's going to be the future of the construction industry especially on a residential basis of, of people wanting one work work done is, is having that intermediary in there that 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 does the sourcing of the the materials and and helps helps the flow and the smoothness between the contractor and the client really yeah it certainly seems a key time for that side of the construction sector martin i wish you all the luck in the world in sort of making that vision a reality really bringing that forward into the limelight and i think as we start to see what the economic recovery is going to be looking like over the next few months and indeed years i'd relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show with us and just catch up on how all of that's getting on because i really enjoyed having you with us today certainly it's been a real eye-opener no i've really enjoyed it and i'd love to come back on That'd be fantastic, Martin. And just because um, we are, you know, still living under some form of restrictions, please do continue to take care and stay safe for now with all still going on. We are almost there, but we're not quite out of the woods yet. But I think the better days certainly are ahead of us. No, and you too, Scott. I was speaking on today's programme to Martin gonzalez Sayens, and I hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed a compelling interview. Um, of course, uh, here at the Leaders' Council, we like bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership onto this programme, and therefore we'll be joined next on the show by Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be addressing his thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic over the last 15 or 16 months, as well as his hopes for the weeks ahead of us. That will be, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being. 
and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think 
out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere. Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was 
all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges, and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sakir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.